Broncos All-Decade Tackle Orlando Franklin. Two-time All-Pro linebacker Chad Brown. Former Broncos tight end and New York Times best-selling author Nate Jackson. 104.3 The Fan welcomes you into the Players Club. Making my way downtown, walking fast, faces passing, I'm homebound. Making a way, making a way through the crowd. And I need you. And I miss you. Oh, wow. That hits. And now I wonder if I could fall. Oh, it just hits every time, oh, when you, when you uncork the, the voice of the angel, man. It hits me right in the heart. It's Friday, dog. Every morning. And you've been. Trying to get through this thing. You've been rolling already for three hours. Been rolling, dog. And we're happy you're rolling with us. Guilty Pleasure Friday, guys. Let Vanessa Carlton tell you the story. Turn it up, Johnny! It's always times like these. It is always times like these when I think of you and I wonder if you're ever thinking of me. Johnny, let's start with you, buddy. You went you went to a show last night, admittedly ahead of that show. You said you weren't going to get a lot of sleep. You might not be so productive today. That means that you had fun last night. Yeah. It How was, did it go? It was a lot of fun. Um, didn't get a lot of sleep, as predicted. I'm on my like third wind right now, but... Uh yeah, it was really good. I mean, Ball Arena has. It's, I was kind of skeptical on how it would sound, but super loud. It was sold out. Um, Paramore, I've never really, right? Yeah. I've never really gone to a, a show like that with a band as, uh, I guess, popular as them so okay. but the the energy was really cool and there's a lot of people my age a lot of younger people too um so it was just it was just overall a really fun time was there an opening band there were two um one of them uh of which was like made up of like 13 and 14 year olds it was like a four person band and they're all like 13 and 14 <laughs> there's like really solid it? yeah what, so. was the, what was the name of their band uh, the Linda Lindas, I believe. Linda Lindas. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, it was a good time. Good you time. Ever seen, you ever seen School of Rock? I have. One of the, one it's of my favorite movie. movies. Yeah. Jack Black was in his bag, so to speak, in that movie because he's a musician. That's Tenacious where this drop comes from. Mad, 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 <laughs> that's, that's right. mad, mad. All right. So, did you meet anybody special, Johnny? No. Did you lock eyes? No, it wasn't that kind of show. We were on um, mosh pit. We had. Uh, I bought like seats. Okay. Um, and we were like. Third row, um, like middle in. So it was like really good sight line. But uh, yeah, like I said, it's just really good show. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling it a little today, but that's all right. I'm just uh, excited to be here. You're not going to remember the hangover. You're going to remember the memory of the night. That's, you're never yeah. going to look back on your life and be like, man, I wish I would have got more sleep that one night. You're 100% right. You know, and I didn't really drink last night either because. I just knew that if I did, it would turn out really bad today. So, wow. You got um, some self-control. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just, you know, music uh, Music is good enough serotonin for the brain. So It is. It, uh, it, was, it was a really good time. And then probably going to, I was going to go to sleep after this show, but I think I'm just going to go right up to Red Rocks because it's a string cheese incident night, man. So, tonight? Yeah, it's a three-night run starting tonight. So oh, wow. Going to see if I can get a ticket to that. Look at you, man. Living a dream. Living a dream. Um, how are you guys doing, O? Chad? I'm doing great. I heard O this morning, so I, I think he's doing well. Thanks for checking in with me. Yeah, Ch- <laughs> uh, how, was your, how was your morning? Was it a difficult, you know, because uh, this show is really easy, really smooth, and then you got to work with a newbie like Mike Evans who doesn't even know what he's doing. you got to hold his hand through it. Were you able to make it through? Three uh, yeah, it was actually uh, it's easier. 
on days that I got to do the morning show because I get to kind of bypass the the kids waking up and oh, trying yeah. to usher them out the door and get them ready for school, right? So it was get up and jump in the shower and be walking out the door, just kind of hanging out. Got my morning coffee. Everything was just a lot slower this morning for me where normally it's like, go, 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 come 7 a.m., right? <laughs> And you're lathered up and you're ready to rock. I heard you guys talking about LeBron, and there's been a, quite an outcry about his speech at the ESPYs about saying he's coming back, he's not retiring. And, you know, the discussion in the last couple of days is, is there a bigger narcissist in the sports world than LeBron? Is it is it possible we're being too hard on LeBron here? ESPN clearly understands he's a moneymaker for them, clearly wants him up on that stage doing things, so he has people who are ushering up to those, him up to those moments. He did just break the all-time scoring record. He is an incredibly popular athlete who's defied all the odds in his entire life to be where he's at. Is it really that was it really that narcissistic of a move to have a have a moment during the ESPYs and <laughs> Telling, telling the world he's coming back. I think the narcissistic move was the moment right after being swept in the Western Conference Finals, which now uh, trickled down and became a snowball effect where now you're at the ESPYs and there are people wondering, is this guy playing this year or not? You know, He said something about retiring. Has he made up his mind or has he not? Where now he feels compelled to take that moment, right? I'm going to take this moment, take these couple minutes and tell you why I'm coming back and that I am coming back. So, What did he say at the end of the, he's talking about after getting swept, it was a narcissistic moment. Yeah, where he talked about, you know, to kind of, he doesn't know if he, he's going to continue playing basketball. He has to take a deep look in uh, this offseason if he's going to come back and play or he's going to retire. Isn't that what all the old guys do, though, every year? Uh, because no. he did give the flowers to the Nuggets. He talked about how fantastic of a team they were, how amazing Nikola Jokic was. The things he was doing was incredible. And if you didn't see that, you're not, you don't pay attention to basketball. You don't know what basketball is. So, so is it that crazy that he said he wanted to take some time to think about it? But typically, that question comes from the media. Uh, the player does not just, you know, have a, a stream of consciousness thought up there, which then creates a firestorm, which then took a week of Skip Bayless and Shannon Sharp and Get Up on ESPN, all of them talking about all that stuff and not talking about the Nuggets. That that superseded what the Nuggets accomplished was this, all this talk about LeBron and what's he going to do. So the fact that I think he just so so callously threw it out there uh, is where some of this pushback is, is coming from. And then using the platform of the ESPYs to, you know, uh, play into this whole thing again. Let's not forget, you know, I'm taking my talents to South Beach. That was also a very contrived media moment. So LeBron... While I give him a tremendous amount of credit for being a guy coming out of fresh out of high school and not having 17 babies, mamas, and all this legal trouble and all this other stuff, he's done a tremendous job with that. There have been a more than a few media missteps in this kind of thing he's done before that he did a couple nights ago at the ESPYs. All right, well, most people either love LeBron or you hate him, and um, that's kind of what makes him so popular. The RamosLive.com text line chiming in. And they don't like LeBron. You guys don't like LeBron. I get it. LeBron's a jerk, but he's really good at basketball, and he holds the all-time point-scoring record. I want to touch on something um, we haven't talked about at all, the uh, the John Gruden email kerfuffle. Mm-hmm. He is determined now, according to reports, to burn the NFL down. And I saw a report that these emails of his were leaked by a, by a group of people. Demory Smith was one of them. Mm-hmm. Roger Goodell was one of them. Um, 
Jay Z's some someone involved with Jay Z, a woman named some some Perez was one of them that the NFL employed to be part of their social justice arm. And these emails were leaked to engender sympathy, according to uh, John Gruden, towards DeMaurie Smith in advance of his reelection campaign. Mm-hmm. And DeMaurie Smith apparently bragged about leaking these emails to make John Gruden look bad and to make him look like a sympathetic figure. Do you think that the social justice pandering has gone too far or with the NFL, or, or, or are they paying too much attention to social justice? The NFL's always been about the uh, the facade of things, the facade of player safety, the facade of caring about players when you don't get health care. So it's all about the facade. And this social justice thing, you know, real social justice from an NFL perspective would certainly be uh, diversity in front offices and GMs and, and head coaches and, and things like that, diversity in the ownership group. Um, so, yes, there is a certain showmanship to – end racism in the, in the end of every in, uh, end zone and all that stuff uh, because the NFL, while it likes to talk a good game, unfortunately does not practice a good game, particularly within its own hiring circles. So, uh, yeah, it's a, there's a falseness to it all, and it's not very difficult to see through it. Just look at the sidelines. Look at the – at some point during every game, they're going to show uh, the press – they're going to show a – uh, a suite in the stadium where the GMs are, just look at those couple of shots. That'll let you know about the NFL's efforts toward diversity, not painting the back of the end zone. You think John Gruden will ever coach again in the NFL? Oh, no. <laughs> Never? Hell no. Oh, uh, I think he's done. Um, good old boy Lee has shut the door on it because there's things that have been exposed. And, you know, when you start looking at some of the situations that John Gruden like it or not, like I, I think John Gruden is is a heck of a football coach. Everybody that I've talked to around him, uh, for me, I think that his offense, his play calling is a little wordy. But other than that, I think Spider that... Spider 2 wide banana. Yeah, he gets the best out of his players. So I think he's a great coach, but at the same time, I think that he crossed the line of no return. So I don't think he gets back in the NFL because of that. And let's not forget, Roger Goodell is there to protect the owners. And so this whole Daniel Snyder thing went down. It looked bad for Daniel Snyder. Who can we make into a scapegoat? Who can we sick the media on? Who can we turn into a, a false flag operation? And it was all on John Gruden. Now, I mean, false flag. Maybe look false flag you, is... Conspiracy theorist, maybe yeah. that's too big of a word because John Gruden was certainly when guilty. Is the, when is the QAnon meeting? <laughs> John Gruden was certainly guilty of, you know, writing those words in emails. But, got Alex Jones over here next to me. Uh, ha, ha. But to look at, you know, five or six or even ten emails... After reviewing 685,000 emails, suddenly John Gruden's the bad guy. It was an investigation into Daniel Snyder and workplace behavior and all that stuff that Daniel Snyder was later found guilty of. But Daniel Snyder had blackmail, PowerPoint, ready to, you know, reveal bad information about some owners. And the the owners don't like that. So let's get John Gruden out of here. Let's protect our guy. Roger Goodell played his role perfectly. That's why it makes 40-plus million bucks a year. Is that it? Yeah. Oh, man. Poor Roger. A dirty business, but a lucrative one indeed. It's uh, approaching $25 billion of annual revenue. So they have some some things they need to protect. Um, On this show, we speak a lot about, and we have, about how this is a make-or-break year for Russ. But what about a player on the offensive line, our very own Orlando Franklin, has some unique thoughts about one position on the offensive line that may be up for grabs. That's next.
You've been admitted VIP entry into the Players Club with Orlando Franklin, Chad Brown, and Nate Jackson. When I'm feeling down, you're getting such a vibe. I just totally bona fide. It's not the way you walk. And it ain't the way you talk It ain't the job you got That keeps me satisfied You love me so And that's what takes me by You guys know the song? No, I don't Sissy music we know This is sissy music that we know This is sissy dance music, man but I, I'm right in the middle of you guys, man. I was I was in the I was in the bosom of it, and you guys were well, Orlando. You were in diapers, and Chad, you were already on your walker. So we got one guy in the middle who can really bring some perspective to this show, and I'm going to continue to do so. Unless you guys have song requests, or you guys on the text line want to hear a song three zero three seven one three one zero four three. You know the vibe, sissy music, or so our friend calls it every morning. Waiting on a text from him, by the way. All right, guys, um, rookies report next week for the Denver Broncos on the 19th, okay? The veterans report the week after that on the 25th. They don't start practicing for a couple weeks, or I'm sorry, a couple days after that. So we're about two weeks out from the beginning of training camp, and next week we're going to go position by position and choose our position MVP. Who's the most important position in that, or a player in that position group? Who's fixing to have the best year? We're going to break that down Next week, but we're going to continue our, co- our conversation about the offensive line. I heard you guys talking about this this morning. You asked Andrew Mason the same co- uh, question about he, – he didn't answer it the way we did yesterday. But you asked him about position battles in camp, and he talked about the receivers. But you said yesterday, oh, I believe that Lloyd Cushenberry is the only position on the offensive line that may be up for grabs. Can you reset your thoughts on that on that argument? Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, when you look at Lloyd Cushenberry, he, he's never really taken the, the next step. And, um, you know, the first two years kind of put into the NFL and said, hey, you know what, we're going to try to make you into something that we've never seen you do in college at LSU. LSU was more of a zone team. Cush did a good job moving laterally. In college, he would get guys at times and be able to kind of move those guys back. But those guys aren't playing football anymore, right? When you get to the NFL now, these are the 1%. These are, this is how you feed your family, right? Right. So the first couple years, we saw Cush struggle in a more of a gap scheme downhill, struggle to move guys backwards. A lot of stalemates, a lot of times he'd get pushed in the backfield and just not win that block. You don't become kind of like a speed bump that the running backs have to kind of run around. Is that a strength issue or a technique issue? Like, can he fix that? I don't know what his weight room numbers are, um, but it could be it could be one or the other, or it could be both. Um, so if it's a technique issue, it's more easily fixed, but if it's a strength issue, I think kind of we are what we are when it comes to strength, right? You, you don't get to NFL, you know, bench pressing 300 pounds, or 330 pounds, and all of a sudden, you know, you're going to, a year from now, be able to bench 450. You kind of, we're going to hover around that, and you might get a little bit worse as the time goes on. Yeah, unless there's some needles hanging around somewhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, when I look at Kush, you know, just kind of the first couple years and struggling in that system, you know, last year when the Broncos got Nathaniel Hackett, I was like, man, the guy that's going to benefit the most on this offensive line is Kush. He could show 
you know, his ability because he's always had that lateral quickness. He reminds me a lot of Tom Nalen as far as being able to kind of reach like a two eye or a two technique. You know, that's really good at the center position when you look at a two eye being the inside shade of a guard. If a center could reach that by himself, man, you're in good shape if you want to run wide zone. But if a center could reach a two technique, a guy that's head up on the guard, you're you're cooking with gas because now you can just kind of send that guard to that linebacker and really create some some holes. But Kush never took that next step last year in an offense that should have made him excel. So you look at that, you look at the uh, addition to Alex Forsythe, the Broncos drafted him when they don't have a lot of draft picks. You look at already Luke Wattenberg being on this team. And then, oh, by the way, we're going to go get Kyle Fuller as well. And all signs to me points that Lloyd Cushenberry, you better show up. Like, this team is not high on you. There are other ways that they could have created depth. I would have loved to seen an outside linebacker too get added to this football team, but yet they decided to go Alex, add Alex Forsythe. So, I think when it it's all said and done with training camp right around the corner. You look at just how this offensive line is constructed. Garrett Bowles is going to be your left tackle unless he gets hurt. Um, ben Powers, they just paid him a whole lot of money. He's going to be your left guard. Quentin Miners now, after I believe last year was his rookie season because he came from, you know, what, Division two school. And Division three, baby. Division three Didn't yeah. play a lot of football. You know another guy who went to the NFL from D3 school? What's that guy's name? Oh, oh. Nate Jackson. Oh, yeah, oh, that, that guy. Was him? Okay, yeah. that guy. Okay, awesome. You know, that you're able to, you know, power, you know, power to you guys. Power, <laughs> you power guys. to you guys. That's awesome. <laughs> but you just look how this power offensive line is really constructed. Guys. And um, for me, everybody's job is solidified and everybody's position is going to be their position, except the center position. I truly believe there's competition there. Chad, as a defensive player who's played every position on uh, every linebacker position, mm-hmm. and you uh, have you have you played with your hand? you were a hand in the dirt guy on the edge ever? Yeah, I, I put my hand in, in the three technique. I mean, a three point stance. Sorry. So, how do you evaluate? Like, what makes a good center? What are the what is the skill set that makes like a you know Tom Nalen, for example, or some of the all time great centers? There are you know a couple different kinds of centers, um, but the best centers I ever played were the movement guys, or Damani Dawson, a, a Tom Nalen. Uh, neither one of those guys were just, you know, absolute road graders at the point of attack, but they had such great movement skills that they were able to do some of the things that O was talking about that Lloyd Cushenberry can't do. He can't, those, those guys were able to reach a, a, a two eye, which then made the rest of the offensive line's jobs that much easier. As a guy on the second level, the defensive line is the first level, the linebackers are the second level. Uh, if it's an athletic center I'm playing, I've got to be prepared for that guy coming up out of there and trying to cut me off. So the more athletic guys can do this. So from a Lloyd Cushenberry standpoint, you've got to be able to do one of the two things. You've got to be either powerful enough to deal with guys who are on you, you know, head up like a nose guard, or you've got to be quick enough and athletic enough to be a movement guy where coaches create some, some offensive line schemes that are able to take advantage of your athleticism where you can reach a two-eye or you can cut off an inside linebacker and create a, a gap or a seam. Lloyd Cushenberry is not excelling at either one of those right now. So that's the biggest issue. You can you don't have to have both skill sets, but you got to have at least one. At this point, he doesn't have either one. Cut-off blocks are, are difficult blocks as offensive linemen or, or tight end because you're – you're you're behind on the the leverage right, right right away, and you have to get in front of somebody who already has an angle on you, mm-hmm. and so it does involve a great deal of, of quickness and technique. And playing with Tom Nalen, um, it was the end of his career, but 
he was really quick with that, and he was really good with his hands, like the hand fighting and the strength so of his ready. hands. Yes. He didn't wear gloves. No. Nope. He didn't wear gloves. His hands were, you know, he put tape on them, I think. But those hands were so strong, and, and the hand fighting was so efficient, mm-hmm. right? So so he wasn't the biggest dude out there. No, Tom was, you know, I, I, if he weighed more than 285, I would have been surprised. My guess, he was probably high 270s. Mm. So Quinn Miners, who did play D3 ball, and um, so, you know, D3 ball, the, the main difference between D3 and D1 is is the big boys. The big boys aren't as big um, in D3, so Quinn Miners not used to playing against the type of competition that he is now. Um, but you think he's, he's, he's locked that position up. I mean, there's no real competition for Quinn Miners. He's coming into his own as a right guard, you, you believe? If I'm, the, if I'm Sean Payton, I'm looking at that accelerated vision, and, yeah, you, you want him to make sure that he solidifies that position where it's not a, you know, moving chairs. You don't want to come out of this season where it's like, hey, I got to replace the right guard and I got to replace the center. You know, you want to, you want Quinton Miners to take the next step. He's taking a, a big step forward. Um, is he a finished product? Heck no, he's not a finished product. There's still things that I, I would think that he would even say that he needs to be able to add and implement into his game. But when you look at this roster, he's a clear favorite at that right guard position. And he has to make sure that he continues to evolve. Well, Kyle Fuller, who's brought in uh, a veteran, he's backing up both Quinn Miners and Lloyd Cushenberry. So conceivably, he could do both. And so we'll, hopefully those guys play well enough to not be replaced, but if so, there's a guy waiting in the wings that has some experience and can come in, and hopefully they don't miss a beat there. So, um, hey, there are big families all right, out there, and then there's Philip Rivers' family. <laughs> the guy's expecting it, his 10th child now, fellas, um, and also, are the Nuggets officially in the Lakers' heads? I think there's evidence to suggest, yes, we're going to do that and more on the morning mixtape. That's next. The Players Club welcomes you into the morning mixtape with a look at the biggest stories in Denver sports. Here's Orlando, Chad, and Nate. OPP. What does that stand for? OPP. You know what I'm talking about. Other people's property. <laughs> Something like that, Chad. You silly goose. <laughs> Guys, Philip Rivers is expecting his 10th <clears throat> child. Yes, that's not a typo. 10 kids. Aggravation stew out of me. How, Chad, how does he do it? How did he do it playing in the NFL, having that many kids? You had a couple when you played. Um, and. Yeah, just how, how how did he do that with so many kids? And, and there's kind of a you know famous story about him when the when the Chargers moved to L.A. Um, he didn't want to move. He didn't want to leave San Diego. Obviously, he has a house with eight kids in it. So um, he had this he had this bus or this tricked out van that would take him the two hours to L.A. every day for practice, and he would have a, you know TVs in there and bed in there, and he could watch his film and all that. So I guess that's sort of how you do it, right? You, you dial in everything else to help. But uh, how do you get any sleep? Oh man, I, I I don't know. I mean, I, I certainly consider my two kids to be a, a, a handful. I think you've got to do a whole, clearly a whole different style of parenting when you got ten kids. Uh, some of the details just, I guess you just hope they take care of themselves. Um, I, I can't imagine that life. It would not be for me. I can't imagine ten kids. I can't imagine ten dogs. I can't imagine a lot of that stuff. So, um, you know, typically Captain Philip Rivers, particularly to his wife, because um, they're all from her. I believe she has all birthed them now. She's not, none of these kids are adopted. No, I think one of them, one or two of them are. Oh, one or two of them. Well, yeah, still, yeah. hey, eight kids is still no, a tremendous a number. That's a lot of kids. Yeah, yeah. so tip of the cap to her. 
Um, and uh, I'll leave it there, man. But Philip Rivers is not the only athlete with a gang of kids. George Foreman, 10 kids. Antonio Camardi, let's not ever forget the hard knocks clip of him. Do you remember him? Struggling to name his children. Do you really count that, though, with, uh, like, George Foreman, 10 kids, how many different women? Camardi, uh, uh, 10 or however many kids, how many different women? Camardi, I know a gang of different women. George Travis Foreman, Henry. I don't know. Travis yeah. Henry, who Tra- played here as a running back yeah. for, at one point. I think he's got 10 now, but he had nine with nine. Yeah, I know Willis McGay had some obscene amount with, a, uh, I think, almost the same amount of, of different uh, baby mothers as Wear well. Wear a condom, man. Um, but yeah. I will tell you this. With Philip Rivers... He Not had two in college and had one on the way when he was leaving NC State. Wow. And, you know, everybody knows about Philip Rivers having all these kids. So when I got to the Chargers, that was one of the questions that I wanted to ask him. Like, yeah, listen, like, how does it work at your, your, like your household with all the children that are running around? And he said the three are pretty much older and they mm-hmm. help out a lot with the younger kids as well. That makes sense. Actually, you can put them to work. and You don't have to do much of it. Yeah. yeah. Evander um, Holyfield, 11. Who did? Oh, Evander Holyfield? Jason Coffey from the Chicago Bulls, 10. Wow. Philip Rivers is not the only one. Someone on the Ramoslaw.com text line saying, what about 10 snakes, Chad? You got 10 snakes? They live in plastic boxes. I feed Chad them once Brown. a week. It's not very difficult. You can do that with kids, too. Yeah, I wish. Leave them. Can't you? <laughs> All right, guys. Are the, are the Nuggets officially in the Lakers' heads? Lakers coach Darvin Ham was on Chris Haynes' podcast and had some choice words for Michael Malone and the Nuggets. Mike Malone did a lot of celebrating. Oh, wow. Bring up money, Mike. Man. The, the Lakers' daddy, right? That's what they call him, the Lakers' daddy? That's what they call him now, the Lakers' daddy? Well, I guess you, you, you can talk when you win, when you win a championship. God like bless his soul. <laughs> this ain't over. That's what's up. God what's bless up. his soul. <laughs> It is over for now. You got swept, and the Nuggets won a championship, so you're going to have to go back to the drawing board there, Darvin Ham. But uh, was there any bitterness there? Did you detect some bitterness, or was that all just good fun? A little little bitterness, uh, a little little steam under the collar, but uh, that's competition. That's competition. You got got beat down. Um, The greatest sweep in NBA history for the losing team. Never heard such a thing before. I mean, how greatest performance in the history of the NBA by a team that just got swept. Yeah, I mean, things you've never heard before. So they should have given him an ESPY for that. Yeah, actually. for that. <laughs> whoever came up with that headline deserved an ESPY. Absolutely. Yes. So uh, I think for Darvin Ham, there is some legitimate uh, anger, uh, upsetness, and you know, Michael Malone and, and the Nuggets better be ready because now, as we talked about with the Avs last year, when you win the championship, now you got the target on your back. Let's see how good are you when every night someone shows up to kick your ass. Mm. Uh, congrats to Vic Lombardi, too. He's the one who said that line, the Lakers' daddy line at the at the parade, and it went viral and went national, and it's clearly in Darvin Ham's head. Uh, do you think the Lakers are poised to actually improve next year and become a better basketball team, Orlando? I think the Lakers are going to improve every single year, but ultimately they're going to burn it all all the way down and try to figure it out at the at the end of the trade deadline. That's what we've seen since LeBron has got there. Every year they're chasing a championship. I don't necessarily um, disagree with the model and the thought process, but at the same time, the Nuggets have the best start in five in the NBA. And if the Nuggets are able to stay healthy, the Nuggets will be right back there this year again as well. Yep, they are the Lakers' daddy. Malik Jackson, Super Bowl 50 champion Malik Jackson, Denver Broncos, went on Good Morning Football today to share some breaking news on himself. 
Move over, Tom Pellicero. Move over, Ian Rappaport. I've got breaking news like three minutes before the show as I was sitting here talking to Malik because yesterday we introduced him as a free agent. And I said, are you, are you done? You never know how you can tread there. And so Malik has an announcement to make. Yeah, I'm done. <laughs> the official retirement announcement. Yes, I appreciated the uh, free agency tag. It made me feel good, but I was like, nah, I'm, I'm not leaving the couch right now. I'm, I'm happy at home. Orlando, when you decided that you were done, how did you alert people? Did you have a press conference? Did you send out a tweet? Did you record a video? Who'd you call first? How did it go down for you? Oh, man. I sympathize with Malik Jackson. When you get that couch time and you realize how life, how good life is when you don't have to go and work out every single day, it gets harder and harder to go back and play football. Um, for me, it was, you know, traveling back and forth, Nate. I, I had signed up with Washington, was out there Monday through Thursday, would jump on a flight on Thursday afternoons and come home to my wife and, you know, newborn. And every Sunday when I would leave to go back out to Washington, it would kill me. A little piece of me was left behind here in Colorado every time that flight took off to go to Dallas International Airport uh, there in the DMV area. So for me, I started thinking about it immediately. And I, the first person that was kind of notified was my financial advisor that this was my thoughts. And if I do do this, you know, can I sustain my lifestyle and what would I need to live under and you know what would monthly how does that look and you know he's like hey let me get back to you I'll get I'll put the numbers together got back to me a day later and I thought that it was very um it was not a, a pipe dream of retirement that I could walk away at that point and then immediately started talking with my wife and then informed my agent and then my agent tried to get me to not do it for a week and then I informed the team and then I took right to social media right after informing the team that I was going to be done. So no press conference for me or anything like that. But I did announce it on social media. What was your wife's reaction when you told her? Happy. My wife was going to get me to retire four years before that. Four years? Yeah. She was like, that would, would have been th- after the year three or four? <laughs> yeah, after year three. Like, yeah, let's walk away. I don't have enough money to walk away from this yeah. thing yet. Yeah. yeah. They kind of stick this thing out for a little, a little longer. Um, but, you know, my wife's been around football all her life, That's but right. her father was on the sideline. So it's different when now uh, your husband or your significant other's playing. And, you know, she tells me about stories of, about seeing somebody on the ground and wondering if that's me and what's going through her head and uh, just being nervous and stressed out in a, in a situation like that. So I understood kind of what she was going through and as far as why she brought it up four years prior to me actually retiring. Yeah, we're, we're the ones out there on the field, and, uh, you know, we're comfortable with the risks and the sacrifices, but the, our loved ones, they didn't sign up for it. Yeah. You know, they love us or their family with us, and so they have to love us because they're our family, and they're along for the ride as well. Chad, 15 years in the NFL. How did it end for you? Did you have a press conference? There was no press conference at all. Um, you didn't drop the mic? I didn't drop the mic. I didn't you didn't say anything. boom? I didn't go. No, I didn't say boom. I didn't go on anyone's Chad show 15 years nationally or, or locally. No, it was, I was... Uh, and, and, you know, I was still listening to teams with offers for year 16. Wow. Um, and so I just got concerned about uh, injury more so than anything. Clearly, I love the game. You don't play 15 years without loving the game. I love the the preparation of it all. I love the workouts. I, I began to embrace and enjoy all of that. Um, I, so it wasn't uh, easy to, to walk away. I just thought I've managed to play this long and escaped something really awful happening to my body. Let me let me make the wise move. As tempting as year sixteen is, I, I should I should step away. Do you have any regrets? Uh, 
No. Very um well, you kinda sound like you did with the uh, the long pause there, the long uh I would have in hindsight would it have been a better legacy move to try to stay in Pittsburgh and take less money? Perhaps. Uh, that, that'd be the only regret because to be a Steeler, to be a Seattle linebacker is obviously very special. Um, the Seahawks are now one of the more prominent teams in the leagues, but for my eight years there, we didn't win a single playoff game. Mm. So uh, the, the difference in winning, the difference in all-time legacy, um, that may be the only regret I have walking away. Yeah, because in that situation, less money is still a lot of money. <laughs> yes. <laughs> still a good amount of money. What you guys are hearing with, with a guy like Malik Jackson announcing his retirement, deciding to hang it up. Most guys, most guys are like me. They don't get to decide. The league decides for you. You, you end up getting cut. You're trying to fight your way back in. Maybe you get a couple workouts. Eventually, people stop returning your calls, and you got to uh, accept that the ride is over and then move on with your life. And uh, that's what we're doing here on the Players Club, moving on with our lives. Guys, I mentioned this earlier. The NFL is approaching $25 billion a year in revenue. That's a huge number. We're going to break that down next. Denver Sports Station 104.3 The Fan presents The Players Club with Orlando Franklin, Chad Brown, and Nate Jackson. It's your boy, man. Boys. I know, but you're a George Michael guy. You want to resurrect him from the dead so you can watch him perform. Like, you, you know, he was one of the guys you chose when we did that exercise. Correct. So this is your boy. Yeah. Big George Michael fan. And, uh, you know, without Andrew Ridgely, there is no George Michael. So it is the ultimate musical teammate story. I highly recommend I highly recommend the, the, the Netflix documentary. I'm telling you, man. Fantastic. So I'm pretty sure this is the song that's playing, and I've tried this before. I got it wrong, but I think this is the right song. In Zoolander, when they're having the gasoline fight. Have you seen Zoolander? Yes, I have. I believe you are correct. And they're at the gas station, and, you know, some male models. They start frolicking. Next thing you know, it's a hot day. They start spraying each other with gasoline. And then, well, the party ends. Yes. You know why? You are correct. It's the gasoline fight on Zoolander with Wake Me Up Before You. Someone lights a cigarette. Yes. And they all die. <laughs> I think uh, Derek Zoolander is the only one who survived that uh, tragedy in the movie. So obviously there's a lot of emotional buildup he had going into, uh, well, that last m- m- show where he was an ambi-turner. You know what an ambi-turner is? You turn both ways. No, he can only turn one way. Oh, I guess you an ambi-turner can turn, but he wasn't an ambi-turner. Correct, because you're ambidextrous right. both hands, yes. Right. Ambidexterity as an athlete, something we don't talk about enough. <laughs> really? We don't Absolutely. talk about that enough? <laughs> I think that's why Nikola Jokic is so great. Okay. Because he's ambidextrous. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have a, a weak side. His left hip is as good as his right hip. His left shoulder is as good as his right shoulder. Obviously, he can shoot both hands. Mm-hmm. He's able to make up for what he can't do physically as far as jumping and sprinting and things like that with his ability, his skill as an ambidextrous ball handler. What do you guys think? I think that's a big factor. I mean, obviously, if when the scouting report comes out, you know, there are going to be certain guys that say, don't let this guy go to his left. You know, let's force him to the right every single time. And so for the Joker, you have to defend both sides of the basket. You can't just play him one-sided because he's so dependent upon one hand. That is part of the secret to his sauce. 
Yeah, you never really get opportunity defensively to kind of funnel a guy to your help, right? When you go against a guy like Nikola Jokic, every time that he gets the ball, you have to be a on-ball defender against him because of his ability to shoot the three, and you know that's hours and hours of hours of him perfecting his shot. But to be able to you know dribble with his right hand as good as his left hand as well, now you have not only do you have to be an on-ball defender, you have to also understand that this guy's a two-way go every single time, right? He just can't go through you because you're entitled to that spot. So it makes your do- job extremely difficult going against guys like that. And, you know, in every sport, you think it's like that in every sport where they talk about forcing a guy one way versus the other? Because we know that's true in basketball. Yep. Um, with football, we you know, you try to use that sideline, try to usher a person out to the sideline. So there's a little bit of tell. But in hockey, probably not, right? In baseball, probably not as well. I gotta imagine certain shooters are far better when they're approaching the net from the right side versus the left side. I, you got I, a dominant I, hand, right? Yeah, I would, have to, I would have to think so. And so, if we're going to allow this guy to take a shot, make sure he's on the left side of the goal as opposed to the right. It's got to be the case, right? Yeah. Same, same in soccer. You know, you have a dominant foot. You're going to take it right. You want to kick. You want to shoot it with your right foot versus your left. The more that kids, youth athletes, can practice with both hands the better off they're going to be because eventually, you know, sometimes in youth sports, you're just the fastest kid. So you can go whatever way you want and you're stronger. You can just have your way with people. But eventually you're going to run up against kids or or athletes who are able to stop that strength of yours. And so you have to be able to go both ways. And I think that the the quicker you learn that stuff as a basketball player, being able to shoot left-handed, obviously they teach you how to do layups left-handed, but how hard do you work on that stuff? And even as a wide receiver, your get-off, being able to go both ways with equal force, strength, precision, um, uh, um, you know, sharpness with your cuts. Those are things that young athletes should think about because eventually you're going to come against the guy who can who can stop you from going the way you want to go. Um, we always knew the NFL was a huge business. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The NFL is closing in on its long-stated goal, guys, of $25 billion in annual revenue. I'm just going to break down a few of the numbers for you. Uh, Amazon's new $1.2 billion Media rights deal for Thursday night football took effect last season, which which brought in nearly twelve. <clears throat> sorry, the league brought in nearly twelve billion in national revenue, according to Forbes, seven percent increase from last year's eleven point one billion. And then add that to the team's local earnings, the NFL is likely closing on twenty billion in total revenue in twenty twenty two. Twenty billion dollars uh, among the league's thirty two teams, every club. Received $372 million from the NFL's national pot last year. The majority of that payment, $249 million, comes from the media rights deal, totaling more than $10 billion annually. So when, when, you, when, you, <laughs> when you talk about these kind of numbers, they're enormous numbers. What does that really do? Obviously, the salary cap is going to go up, right? Commensurate with that. Does that change the way that you structure any of these contracts or the way that you look at these players or the way that you look at your long-term business? Like, for example, the the deal that Russell Wilson signed, which was a big deal, in two or three years might not seem like that big of a deal, right? Um, it might seem like a good deal if he can play well. Um, when you guys got in the league, Chad, when you got in the league, what was the salary cap? Do you remember? Because now, what is it, twenty two twenty five now, Johnny? Johnny's going to look it up. I don't even recall. Uh, I'll look it up, see if I can find something on that. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, gosh, I want to say maybe in the 30s or 40s, 30 million, 40 million. It wasn't much at all. It's 224.8 right now. I have a radical idea, guys, and I want you to tell me what you think about it. Okay. What would a team look like, an NFL football team? Okay, $225 million salary cap, and every single player on the team made the exact same amount of money. $4.5 million, $4 million each. And then hefty bonuses for good performance. Performance-based bonuses, but everyone makes the same money. What would happen? They kind of have that. Now the performance based bonus because no, the performance based bonus, but the but the base salary would be identical for everyone. Uh, no, it, it, it's 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 counter to uh, our system of of free uh, capitalism and the free market. <laughs> yeah, but but football is supposed to be uh, separate from the BS of the real world, and capitalism free market has its levels of BS. Football is supposed to be a team sport where we're all. We're all we're all pulling in the same direction. We're all working just as hard. So why aren't we all getting paid the same amount of money? We're all not working just as hard. We're, we're all not. There's no doubt about that. Isn't a practice squad wide receiver actually working harder than a quarterback? As an example, I left New England and after year 13 and went to Pittsburgh. Ben Roethlisberger did not put anywhere near the same amount of time that Tom Brady did. So just right there. The, We're talking about uh, team to team. It, it, okay, but even within a, it, the league, there are, what, 1,600 players? Are you going to tell right. me that the 1,600th player is worth the same amount as the absolute best player? Well, he'll make more with bonuses, with, with his performance. Th- there's, only, there's only so many Orlando Franklins on the planet. People, human beings who are that size, they're rare. To be a running back is not a rare size. There's lots of people who can do that. We've seen guys be successful, come off their couch, and be able to play running back. So the truly great people deserve this money. Uh, the truly outstanding uh, human traits that make you a, a commodity because you're so rare, that makes you more money. i I've, I got to push back on this this thought. I, I understand the team part of football, um, but this one does not reward people for their exceptional abilities uh, that is commensurate with you know their their value to the team. You look at just the offensive long offensive long offense alone, right? Offensive line, quarterback position, you're expected to play every snap. You go in the game, you're expected to play every single snap. Well, what wide receivers, tight ends, running backs, your snap count is manipulated by the personnel grouping that they trot out there on the field. So you could have a wide receiver go out there and play, you know, 31 snaps, but that's 100% of the snaps at the wide receiver position, where an offensive lineman would be out there for 60 snaps, right? So you're playing almost double the snaps in the course of a game. Wide receivers running five times as far as an offensive lineman. Okay, what about the fact of a long snapper then, Nate, that only plays, what, 10 snaps a game? Yeah. And, yeah, he does run a long way, but he plays literally 10 snaps. And the NFL protects the heck out of those guys. You can't even line up somebody on them. You cannot line somebody up on the side, and he cannot bull into the, the, the long snapper. He has to rush a shoulder. He cannot even square that guy up in that position no more. So he should get the same amount of money as an offensive lineman? All right, how about everybody makes a base salary, the same base salary, and then based on the number of plays, you make a bonus based on the number of plays you're on and production. Yeah, that's no. not work. Why? No. Why? Okay, just just a little housekeeping here. 1994, which would be my second year in the league, the salary cap was $34 million. Wow. Last year, it was $224 million. 34. That is an increase of 561%. 
uh, as far as the growth in the salary cap. It's amazing. So how has that money? How has that money changed the actual game, if at all? Oh, I mean, just look. How at the, has it changed the game on the field? Look at the look at the Pro Bowl. Look at the the player participation and things like that, where I could risk my money. Once upon a time, the Pro Bowl was significant money to be on the the losing team and make your fifteen thousand, to be on the winning team and make your thirty thousand. That was worth it to go out there to Hawaii for a whole week and play in that game. John Elway played in that game. I played in that game. I played with Hall of Famer dudes who played in that game. Um, but nowadays, they can't even get these guys to participate in a, a glorified flag game with anything more than a half-speed energy because they make that much money. Business decisions are made at a far greater rate and a far uh, more serious frequency than they were in my time because guys just simply make that much more money. Mm. Uh, to get back to your other conversation, uh, you talked about wide receivers and wide receiver running <laughs> all these. Um, yeah, we actually yards, have to run. Right? Yeah, you're, you're you're actually, but you are also going against a guy with a similar skill set as you. Yeah, right. So you're going against a DB. You probably run around the same forty time. Probably jump around the same amount. Like everything's kind of there's similarities in it. Offensive tackle going against me as Orlando Franklin going against Chadwick Everett Brown. It's not. It's a mismatch. That's my name. It's, it's, it's 100% a mismatch. But on top of that, I got to go backwards in a passing game. And I don't have eyes in the back of my head. I just got to try to feel and, and understand that the quarterback on this particular play is going to set up right here. So uh, I, I get, trust me, I get your argument as far as, like, you know, fair salaries and got, trying to, you know, mimic that all throughout the league, but it just would never work. And the, the last end-all, be-all, Let's be honest. I mean, however, we, as much as we might not like it, the, the quarterback position is the most important position of all sports. As far as what a quarterback has to know, how a quarterback has to get you in the right play and right position, but also you know everybody else's job. We all heard Peyton the other day with that, <laughs> I'm just laughing, with that video, man. right? Of course, I mean, Peyton's going to say that. No, but I mean, he's like, it's you a hard position. True? A hard, well, I want to see Peyton go play cornerback, and I'll tell he'll say that that's a harder position. Because he can't do that. Nate, there's a reason why every single year there's multiple quarterbacks that are drafted, and every single year there's multiple quarterbacks that wash out. There's only 32 of these things, but yet every We're year them up people fail, are looking man. for We're these setting guys. those guys up to fail, though, with all this talk about how important they are. Let's get mm. the team playing as a team, and you don't put it all on the quarterback's shoulders, and you don't fail so drastically as these guys do when they put it all on this young buck. I don't think there's another position on the on, in a football team that has a greater rate of need as far as... There's not 32 quality starting quarterbacks in the NFL. It's a unique skill set, absolutely. But but there are 32 tackles. There are 32... Definitely 32 wide receivers. Cornerback, 32 wide receivers. 64 wide receivers. 32 running backs, 32 (laughs) inside linebackers. It is the only position that the current demand... Has not been met from a supply standpoint. Every other position will never be enough met. supply <laughs> because we've lost the plot when it comes to evaluating them. Chad, you talked about this before. We don't look at the right guys for the job. We look at the guys who entice us with a big throw or a big game. The guys who actually have the processing skills, like Mister Relevant last year, Brock Purdy, who comes in and leads this team almost to the Super Bowl. 
was an afterthought. Every team has three quarterbacks, too, Nate. I know. <laughs> they have two on the roster and one on practice squad, but yet we still can't figure this thing out. we got to get Peyton on here to, t- to, to, to tell us why the quarterback's that, the most. That Netflix good. special on quarterbacks. No, I watched the first out. episode. It was pretty it was darn good. good. Did, it, did, it yeah. make you, did it make you feel Saw something? last night. No. I almost clicked on it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so when we talk about the Broncos' offensive line prospects, um, good thing for us, we have an all-decade tackle in here to set us straight. We're going to reset the O-line discussion next.